I was quite open to the idea, I suppose, sensitive, let's say, primed, to listen out for these ideas that I'd encountered in one field, this field of complexity science, cropping up in a different form, in different clothing, if you will, uh, wrapped in a more playful, lighter, more childlike kind of form. all about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode, we talk with somebody who is making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this final episode of 2019, it feels somehow appropriate to welcome Rob Poynton, who has a long-standing interest in improvisation and creativity. He is also the author of several books, including recently the best-selling Do Pause, all about the importance and necessity of pausing, which seems particularly relevant at this time of year, and given some of the complexity and turbulence we've all experienced in recent months. Rob is originally from the UK, but now lives off-grid in rural Spain, as well as spending quite a lot of his time in the city of Oxford, which is where I met with him a few weeks ago, where he is also a fellow at the Said Business School. I first met Rob 10 years ago at an event he organised all about learning about leadership from the experience of conducting a professionally trained choir, which was both a terrifying and exhilarating experience and made a deep impression on me at the time. A few years after that, I was lucky enough to spend a few days staying with Rob and his family at his self-built house on a rural Spanish mountain. And then a month ago, I reconnected with him at a really interesting two-day gathering in the UK called Basecamp, which we discuss in this episode. Rob and I had a really interesting and wide-ranging conversation where we talk about everything from the work of the complexity theorist David Snowden to the election in the UK, which had not happened yet when we met up. So I started out by asking him how he first discovered improvisation and why he thinks it is so important. Enjoy! The world is complex, messy, unpredictable. So attempts to control that, to determine what happens, to be in command of everything, are going to fail sooner or later. And I'm interested in what happens once they fail. I'm perfectly happy with the idea that there are realms of life or work that it makes sense to try and manage as if they were simple and controllable. But in the act of that simplification, something important is lost. And that's what's always interested me, I think, looking back. I'm not sure I would have known that at the time, all the way back to studying psychology here. My dissatisfaction with the studying psychology is that they spoke of the human mind and human behavior as if it could be completely understood. And that, for me, was a very strong disconnect with my experience of being human, which was of this messy, turbulent, unpredictable existence. And, and I think it's worth noting on that, that, that often those words I've just used sound negative. But actually, that's where the joy of life lies as well. The surprise, the delight, the unexpected. So that seemed to me to be a very important part of life. So I've always been interested in that. And so I, as a consequence, got interested in the science of complexity and then spent many years doing various different courses and programs, becoming very, very 
interested in and quite familiar with some of the ideas that come from this. And I think of it, the science of complexity, I think of it as the science of everyday life or the science of messiness or the science of what happens outside the laboratory. So if you think about Benoit Mandelbrot, the great mathematician, he set off to try and work out the mathematics of clouds. Those extraordinary beautiful things that we see up in the sky every day. There was a man who kind of went, what's the mathematics of that? But really, not idealised clouds or simplified clouds, but real clouds. And that led, uh, in a way I don't understand, to the whole field of fractal geometry. So immersing myself in that, I was invited by a company I used to work for, an ad agency, to go back. And I was given a very open brief, which was to do something interesting and stimulating. And I'd just come from spending nearly a month at Schumacher College in Devon, which is the Centre for Adult Eco-Literacy, in the company of Fritjof Capra, who's a physicist and perhaps one of the more eloquent explainers of the complex world, complex adaptive systems, from a scientific perspective. So I was quite well prepared. And I decided to make that the basis of this day's stimulation. And there was quite a strong connection to the work of this company, which was an ad agency, which was simply about, let's look at creativity in nature. And yet, about an hour or so into it, somebody said to me, why does this sound like a religion? But later I realized that I had effectively learned a whole set of codes of terms in fractal geometry, sensitivity to initial conditions. You talk about the high priests of this field, whether it's Ilya Prigogine or Francisco Varela, people that if you've immersed yourself in this are familiar to you, but to people to whom this is new sound like gods or prophets. And so it was deeply dissatisfying and quite depressing. So that question, why does this feel like a religion, was that a criticism, do you think? I can only speak for how that landed. It felt to me like a barbed criticism which is probably says more about me than, than someone else. But whatever the intention was behind that observation, the conclusion was that that's unhelpful because a religion is just, I was trying to explain a set of ideas that you could engage with and use and manipulate. And, and religions are about something else, about accepting a set of beliefs. And so whatever I was doing on that day wasn't working in the way I'd hoped it had. And the session was becoming closed rather than opening. And so what happened in and around that time, I, for a completely different reason, I had come across and started working with improv theatre. And that happened because I was asked to do a speech for the Nike design camp. And it was quite a big ask because at that time, nobody from Nike that wasn't from the design department was allowed to go. Only, you know, one or two outsiders. And so I stepped into the shoes of the speaker and they called me and they gave me this brief where they said, well, last year... No, the first of all, they said, we want you to talk about creative problem solving. And I said, what do you mean by that? And they said, oh, you'll work it out. So that wasn't very helpful. And then they said that the guy last year was a psychology professor from Harvard who talked about his experiences in a concentration camp and made everybody cry. And he was really funny and he was deadhead. And I was like, oh, my God, this is an impossible brief. This was like, how do you deliver a serious, substantive lecture and a best man speech all rolled into one? And then they really wrong-footed me, pardon the pun, by saying, what are you going to wear on your feet? And I was like, what? And of course, at the time, I wasn't really familiar enough with the Nike culture to know how important that was. And so I looked on about a whole pair of waxy black Doc Martens, probably, which was the wrong answer. And there was this horrible pause, and they asked what size my feet were. So anyway, when I eventually turned up with this talk, they brought some shoes for me, which, of course, were the wrong size. So I had to hobble around the whole thing, which is kind of for two days on end wearing these Nike shoes that didn't fit. To meet the point about being funny which is a very, very difficult brief, I thought, well, I'll take bits of film I know to be funny that speak to the issue of creative problem solving in some way or other. So I used bits of Blackadder and quite a lot of Whose Line Is It Anyway? And so that was in my mind. 
when a few weeks after that, I bumped into somebody in Portland for a completely different reason. I bought a T-shirt of his, and he happened to mention in passing that he did improv theatre. And with this in my mind, I kind of went, oh, how, do, how do you do that? Um, and I often say this in workshops, and I'm happy to say it in, more publicly now. The reason I asked that was because I was looking at this man thinking, well, I thought this was a question of talent, and you don't look very talented to me. And I can say that because he's one of my best friends, Gary Hirsch. And his answer was amazing. He said, it's just a question of practice. And I was flabbergasted. So I inquired more and said, well, what do you mean? And he started explaining how improv worked. And he was an improv performer. And as he spoke, I recognized all the same ideas that were there in The Science of Complexity about iteration and about uh, emergence and about small changes making a big difference. And it was like everything came together beautifully. And in that very same first conversation, I said to Gary, could you do that with a whole bunch of executives from an ad agency, which was a client that I had who'd given me a sort of an open brief for an event that they were about to run. And and so we ran that and got invited back four times and started the business. And that was 25 years ago. It's easy to think that that was all random or that we did, neither of us did anything that made that happen. But actually, if you scrutinize it, we did. So... We were prepared to talk about things other than that which we'd met to talk about. So Gary and I met to talk about the brief for a T-shirt. But when something more interesting, or at least as interesting, hailed into view, we were happy to explore that. I was quite open to the idea, I suppose, sensitive, let's say, primed, to listen out for these ideas that I'd encountered in one field, this field of complexity science, cropping up in a different form, in different clothing, if you will. Uh, wrapped in a more playful, lighter, more childlike kind of form. And so that willingness to make those unlikely combinations and then to say, well, what could we do with this? And instead of self-censoring and saying, oh, I couldn't possibly ask a person I just met if he wants to work with me, to be willing to be open to a different kind of information. So a more intuitive gut feel of like, this feels worth pursuing. There's energy here. This guy, there's something about him and vice versa that enabled us to kind of launch ourselves into the void in a way that turned out to be incredibly fruitful. And the business we started effectively then is this just delightful, resilient, robust, tiny little consultancy still in Portland, Oregon, where Gary lives. I love that whole story and you're weaving lots of themes which are fascinating to me, not least complexity and emergence. And it strikes me, you, you use the word primed and open and sensitive. Those are all kind of words that suggest you're listening and you're present and you're paying attention to what's happening in the here and now. How do you make decisions? How do you choose the Gary yeah. person you want to work with or that this is the right response to that open brief from a client? So I love the idea that in every moment is this infinite possibility, but with that comes infinite choices. And often that can be paralyzing. How do you personally navigate that or how do you teach others to kind of navigate their way through that? Yeah, that's a very perceptive and interesting question. How do we make those choices? So it's easy to use this language of abundance and but in the end one still has to make choices. How does that not be overwhelming or paralyzing? And I think I would make a distinction between there's how we think, or let me speak for myself, there's how I think I make decisions. And then there's my post hoc sense making of how I've actually made decisions. And those two have operated for me in a different plane. So how do I make those decisions with my body is the short and simple answer. And I've always made the important decisions with my body, but I've only realized that quite recently. 
Whereas I've always been making decisions like this for the entirety of my life. But it took me a while to understand that. First, let me unpack what I mean by with my body. There are certain sensations that I have of things just feeling right or not right. Of me feeling enthused and energetic or feeling deadened and frustrated and corralled, actually. Kind of constrained in a way that is not pleasant. And for me personally, that shows up as a particular sensation in my gut in my midriff uh, that I have learned to read. And Carl Rogers, the psychologist, he said, you have to learn to know what you're feeling. And I think it's very interesting that just because it's your feeling or the feeling is happening to you doesn't mean that you necessarily have automatic access to it. So one of the things I will often do, you asked about helping others to do this, one of the things I encourage people to do is to pay close attention to this, what I call this wonderful instrument, your body, in all its complexity which is unique and yours and yours will be different from mine and its read will be different. So you have to learn to read it. The bodily feeling is very, I would say, very high bandwidth, but very immediate. Um, but it doesn't present in the same way as a rational reason or explanation. So there's another piece of work here you have to do, which is to learn to see emotional feeling, whether it's physical feeling or a more uh, kind of heartfelt emotion as data too, and to give that credence whilst not expecting it to be the same kind of data as facts or information or kind of more analytical thing. So over time, it's not just the starting a business with somebody I've just met. It's the countries I live in, the houses we've bought, my wife. All of the important life decisions were made in this way where there's a very strong visceral sensation. But you've got to learn to read that for yourself. And that requires kind of practice and diligence. You talked earlier about the science of the science of life, the maths of clouds, you know, the kind of the rational, the reason, mm. the slow brain versus the, the immediate high bandwidth visceral response. How do those two things play out for you personally, the, the rational and the visceral? Well, Kierkegaard said life can only be understood backwards, but it has to be lived forwards. There's an improv game, actually, which speaks to this really well, which is called Walking Backwards in the fu- into the Future, which is kind of quite hard to describe, so I wouldn't bother. But essentially... My shorthand for this is all good rationalization is post-rationalization. So we tend to use rationalization as a pejorative, post-rationalization as a pejorative. In actual fact, I think that is the role of rationalization. So if you look at the way the brain works, William James, he said, we don't run from the bear because we feel fear. We feel fear because we've run from the bear. Neurophysiologically, the bit that we call consciousness is playing catch-up. It's actually quite slow. You take your hand out of the candle flame before you feel the pain. And that's kind of hardwired into the nervous system. Whether you look at it at that level or whether you look at it at at the sort of event level, we can only properly understand and analyse that which has already happened. Now, in a predictable, controlled, constrained world where everything is acting according to simple laws, that's not a problem. We can predict and think about the future so we can rationalise forward, if you will. But actually, the world isn't like that and increasingly more Obviously not like that. So we can't rationalize or reason our way into an unpredictable, chaotic VUCA world. But that doesn't mean that rationalization is a bad thing or is wrong. It just means it has a different value to it, which is post hoc sense making. In other words, to look at what's happened in, if you will, the cold light of day, to analyze it in the frame that is relevant to your interest. And there you can do good analytical work in order to act forward into the world in a way that you don't repeat the same mistakes. So it plays a very, very important role in kind of learning, but it needs to be married with kind of intuitive, felt sense, visceral way of responding, 
You know, so another way of looking at this is the army at peace, or a military force at peace, seems all to be about discipline, rigor, structure, but then in the fog of war needs to be able to respond and adapt. Sense and respond is the doctrine that the US military holds now rather than command and control. When we set off to build a house, which is a physical concrete, you know, a structure which is concrete and has to meet legal requirements as well as uh, practical ones. And, and there's obviously there's a high cost involved. It's necessary to complement the analytical structured way of thinking and acting with what you might call a creative responsive way of thinking and acting in order to do two things. One is to solve unforeseen problems. The weather changes. It's raining. You can't work with stone on scaffolding by hand when it's raining because it's dangerous. So you've got to find something else to do which wasn't in the plan. But there's another positive sign, which is the ability to exploit unforeseen opportunity as well as solve unforeseen problems also requires creative adaptation. And David Snowden, the complexity theorist and, and physicist, he, he talks about in his model, Kinevin of complexity, which has actually four quadrants, but five. And the fifth one is the important one because he puts it in the middle and it's a black hole. And he says, that's where we normally are, which is not knowing where we are. And when we don't think about what kind of problem we're solving or what kind of situation we face or what kind of thinking is needed, we just do what we're used to. And in the West, in this point in history, all of us have been educated in a certain way of thinking, which owes a lot more to structured, analytical, much more Newtonian, much less quantum, if you want to look at it through the lens of physics. And so we tend to, without noticing, apply that way of thinking, more structure, more analysis, more information, more powerful computers, when maybe what you need to turn, to do is to actually enter into the other intelligences and, and speak to your colleagues and kind of go, how are we feeling? How are we feeling right now? And it may be that the feeling in the room is far more important than the plan or the analysis or the resources or the money or anything like that. Where does that leave the role of kind of planning? You know, is the post-rationalization that you talked about, is it just so that you can learn to make better kind of visceral reactions when you come across something that looks and smells a little bit similar in the future? Or what is the role for kind of forward well, planning? The role for forward planning is enormous. It's, it's enormously valuable. It's a brilliant and absolutely stupendous skill that we couldn't possibly do without. The problem is if you're a hammer, the world looks like nails. So if that's all you ever do and you think that when things fail or struggle, you need to do more of it, that's the problem. So I wouldn't argue against it at all. And I think that in my work, it happens less often now. But when I first started in this kind of work, people would assume that my position was that you should improvise everything or everything's emergent or there's nothing you can control. And at the time, although I felt that was wrong, I didn't really know how to explain it. So the role of planning and analysis and structured thought is absolutely fundamental. You can't do without it. Part of it would be to frame expectation. So to set the ground. Because, you know, one of the problems with holistic thinking is if you take that literally, you're trying to do everything all at once. And that is even more paralyzing than trying to analyze everything. You've got to frame things. I think behind the frame would lie an intention and desire, probably something a little bit kind of softer, you know, so... If you take the, the kind of the process of continue asking why, that's partly to get under the skin of what we want. Why do you want to do this? What to meet plan? Why do you want to meet plan? What to make more money? Why do you want to make more money? You get to more interesting things behind that. But still, the, the rational analytical kind of planning piece is an important part of the framing. It introduces a huge economy to your thinking. You choose what you pay attention to and what you don't. The reason why this podcast is called On the Edge is because my kind of hypothesis, and I'm just curious whether you agree with this, there's great opportunities, but also great kind of dangers almost at every kind of, every point. And so knowing how to 
navigate your way towards those opportunities and away from those dangers requires incredible improvisational skill, but also paying attention. And I guess perhaps what we'll come on to this kind of pausing stuff that you've been mm. thinking about more recently. So, but yeah, before we come on to that, I'm just kind of curious about how do you think the present moment that we're in compares? My own view is that that the world has already is intrinsically this complex, generative, adaptive, responsive system. You know, the absolute genius of particularly Isaac Newton, but the whole kind of period of enlightenment enabled us to feel that we had unlocked the secrets of the universe and that actually they were really, really simple. And those simple, powerful ideas, many of them mathematical, allowed us to make enormous, extraordinary material progress so that we felt like we were the masters of the universe. And I think now we're coming to the end of that period and that is becoming so that the underlying truth, which is that those approximations and models, effective though they are, capture part of the truth, not the whole truth, always leave something out. And that's the very essence and nature of a model. So whether it's Alfred Korzybski talking about the map not being the territory or brilliant Silicon Valley-based biology teacher called Tom McFadden saying that scientific models are useful lies. When you forget that they're, in McFadden's words, lies or that the map's not the territory, when you reify these models and believe them to capture everything as it is, something very, very important is lost. And so I think we're coming to the end of a period where that illusion was one we could maintain. But we're getting many, many messages to suggest that the kind of complex, turbulent, unmanageable piece is kind of coming back to the fore. Then to zoom in on the last 20 years, I think, if you like, in my own work, this has gone from lunatic fringe, if you will, using ideas from improv and complexity in business was hilarious to many people. And we started doing it actually in the late 90s. Then there's been a sort of mainstream or more mainstream adoption of some of the concepts, but more of the language. So there's a, a sort of trap here that we fall into repeatedly as human beings. We learn the new language, but we don't really change what we're doing. So now no, long, no longer does anybody think it's strange, the things I do. The sort of the real serious implications of it for us individually, on a personal level, collectively in our organizations and, and institutions, and then on a kind of planetary or society-wide basis i think we're only beginning to really get our heads around and so i think there's quite a lot of denial going on whether it's and i don't just mean climate change deniers i mean those of us who believe that we can and i'd include myself in this much of the time kind of carry on business as usual and make a few little changes around the edge so right now i do get a sense of i, I suspect that some kind of partial collapse is necessary because so much needs to change in such a profound way and don't ask me what that is i have no idea because that's going to be emergent but we can't do it we need to sort of clear the forest there's too much in the way so you know here we are on the verge of a general election in the uk and the paralysis and the sort of craziness of the last three years whatever your perspective on brexit it's extraordinary to me that this should be the issue and it feels to me a little bit like fiddling while rome burns there are some absolutely cataclysmically large issues but as a society we've sort of chosen all of us together to tune into this nostalgic kind of riff about what Britain was or is or could be, you know, in an era where it doesn't seem to me that the nation state is really able to do very much at all. We need to think more about how we work collaboratively on, on every level of scale. keen to come on to why you've written a book called Do Pause and why mm. you think now is a time that people need to perhaps think about 
that as an idea and pausing perhaps more than they have done given the weak signals, the not so weak signals that you've, um, you've yeah. touched upon. You know, we have an impending election here in the UK. This podcast will probably go out after oh, the yeah. election. So, <laughs> so I'm not going to ask you to predict the outcome because that would be unfair. But well, um, I, I, if I may, I won't try and predict the outcome. And that's kind of the prediction I would make. So the newspapers today are predicting a significant Conservative victory, which may in fact turn out to be the case. But I would be surprised if there aren't surprises. So I think that the whole business of, you know, this is an instance of polling being a kind of uh, a legitimate but flawed way of sampling an actual set of behaviours. Expressing an opinion on an opinion poll is different from voting, substantially different. One's an act, the other is an expression of a point of view. And I don't just mean people can change their minds. I mean, it's a fundamentally different thing. The same person may act in a different way than they speak, in defiance sometimes of their own beliefs. Plus all the demographic complexity, the nature of the British political system. And so I think that it's a great example of where, yes, it may turn out that the predictions are true, but even if they are true, I think they'd probably be right in the sense that a broken clock is right twice a day, you know, that actually that would be sort of coincidental. I expect there to be something deeply unexpected in the result of this election. I've got no idea what that would be, by definition. The election, of course, comes just before a period in the UK, at least, where a lot of people take some time off if mm. they celebrate Christmas and New Year. Mm. And so there's a natural pause in many people's lives, not everybody. I'm reflecting on 2019 and thinking about the turbulence or otherwise that may be to come in 2020. So yeah, what, why have you written this book, Do Pause? Why is this something that um, you think is important now and how do we do it? A number of people said to me, you should write about this. I was playing around with the idea of pausing in the context of improv and quite independently, a number of people said you should write about this. So what's the role of pausing in improv? Well, the theory, the hypothesis was, so what happens when you do improv with non-expert improvisers is people, before they get to experience it, will often say, I couldn't possibly do that because I can't think fast enough. When you work with experienced improvisers, you realise that the ability to respond in the moment is nothing to do with going fast. In fact, quite the opposite, that the most skillful improvisers are able to make time and take time where there would seem to be none. What my hypothesis when I was playing around with this idea in the context of improv was, oh, if I, as it were, force some pauses in, create a mechanic or a game where there's a necessity to pause or a rule that you have to pause? Will that enable novices to move more quickly towards a level of skill? Didn't work at all. It was kind of completely clunky and, and useless. But it led to these comments that people came to me and said, there's something in this. And so that was the sort of genesis of it. And as I got to thinking about it, there were two things that immediately struck me. One was that a pause is not an objectively defined period of time. And I thought that was really interesting. We can all recognise a pause when we see one, but we can't actually define it in the sense that we can't say how long it is. Even Pause might be a moment, uh, it could be a heartbeat uh, or a breath, uh, or it could be a sabbatical year. Now that's quite a big span of time, and yet we all quite happily use this word. And that connected to the second thing, which was this idea that time is a single dimension and, and you occupy a point on it, that you're either going fast or you're going slow. And pause actually can be slow, but isn't automatically slow. It can be very quick. And there are clues in the language here, so more haste, less speed. These are old ideas in a way. And so where I ended up was that, that pause is a kind of portal, if you will, a moment that allows us to enter a different dimension of time, giving time depth and texture and quality. So it's not just about the number of minutes or hours or days. And I'd seen this in some of my other work where... I'd organised retreats under the wing of a research centre here in, in Oxford. 
And in the space of a couple of days, people could not just come up with ideas or have insights that they wouldn't otherwise have had, but really you could see them kind of becoming almost somebody with a completely different demeanour and attitude and bearing, uh, sort of fully inhabiting themselves in a way that they don't do when they're rushing around answering emails. And so it struck me that there's something really interesting here about opening ourselves up to time and avoiding this dichotomy of fast versus slow, which is another piece of either or thinking, and saying that actually pausing is is an independent variable and that wherever you are on that spectrum and however fast you have to move, you should think about where you can introduce a pause, which might be a moment before you enter a room. So if you're a leader, how you enter a room, back to complexity, sensitivity to initial conditions, how you walk into that room is going to have a profound effect, though you may not realise it, upon what happens in the conversation and decisions you reach. And I once spent here, actually, with a, a senior leader from a German media company who was a, is a short woman, very conscious of her lack of stature, we spent about half an hour having her come in and out of a room in different ways, just to experience and explore how you come in and out in and out of a room. And this was before she even said anything. And so what we discovered is what I called a whole sort of taxonomy of, of terms. So, you know, gesture, position, posture, style, pace, direction, orientation, all of these things are physically available to you. But if you don't pause for even a second to think about how you enter a room, you'll enter a room in your default setting, which much of the time may be fine, but on some occasions may create exactly the effect you don't want or something you don't expect. So then we're back to Snowden's black hole in the middle of the Kenevin model, which is of, of not acting consciously from where we know we are, but just falling into a default model that we don't think about. If we're at a point in human history where we face some severe choices with some significant consequences... And we just keep doing the same thing, each of us individually, each of our organizations, our society. How are we going to be able to change if we don't look up and out? Ironically enough, when we're in the middle of a crisis, when everything seems incredibly urgent, it's not that we should stop because the urgency is real, I believe, but that we do need to pause. And actually, that might be the most productive space. That might be the place where we realize that we're trying to solve the wrong problem or we've got the wrong people in the room. And so for me, the leavening of that kind of relentless pace, and there's a, there's a big shift here for me from uh, living in what I would say is a mechanical uh, version of time. Again, very old idea. This would be chronos in the Greek language, as opposed to the lived, felt, sense, experience, phenomenological kind of sense of time, much more organic, seasons, tides, winds, which would be kairos, the kind of felt sense of time. Mm. And you're a physicist. I mean, if you think about it, we live in a world which is driven by a Newtonian concept of time, absolute, objective, and true. And yet Einstein showed us that time is actually more interesting than that. And it's not that there's no time, but there's no one single objective, absolute time. So even the fabric of the universe is pointing out to us that there's more going on here than we sometimes pay attention to. Two questions in relation to what you just said. One is, is pausing always a precursor to action? Sometimes pausing is the action. Or part of the action. So it's not, in my view, opposed to action. I spoke to a film director who said, thinking of his work, pause is an integral part of the action. Or Gary, the improviser I mentioned earlier, who said, pausing is a quality of stopping. Or a musician, a flautist in Denmark, who said, the breaths are part of the music. So sometimes the pausing is part of the 
part of the piece. Sometimes it may be a precursor to action, or it may be, if you think of something as mechanical, literally, as changing gear in a car. My father, who was an engineer and old enough to, to have driven cars that didn't have synchromesh, in other words, you declutch in order to move from the gear into neutral, and then let the clutch back in again for the gears to adjust their speeds, and then you declutch again and move the gear stick into the gear that you wanted to. Modern gearboxes allow us to, to not sort of pay attention to that, and of course automatics kind of obviate the need for it altogether, but it's symbolically what it's suggesting is that there's always an interregnum. So you use an organic example after you breathe out and before you breathe in, there's a turning point, there's a moment, there's a pause. So sometimes the pause is not an integral part of action, sometimes it's not sometimes it is a precursor to action, sometimes it's an inflection point for a change of direction. I think Thelonious, it was Thelonious Monk said, music is the spaces in between the notes, or something like that. My second question, and I wrote down this question yesterday, and I'm not entirely sure what I meant by it, but I'm going to ask you and see how you interpret it. So, is pausing a reassertion of our humanity? Yes, I would say. Although I'd go a bit further. I'd say it's a, it's a biological life thing. But it's very interesting. I'm reading Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep at the moment, which is you know, very interesting. And if I've understood it correctly, along the way, he says that every form of life has some form of resting or sleeping, even single-celled organisms. And so it would seem that there's something intrinsic. Life can't be always on. One of the things about the book I really like is that actually it actually unpacks some of the, the mechanisms that are happening while we're sleeping to explain why sleep is such good medicine for almost every modern disease you can think of. So it does seem to be something intrinsically organic. Machines are designed run better at a constant speed. You know, so if you look at the evolution of the engine, again, my father, he was an aeronautical engineer. So in, you know, when aero engines first were produced, they were reciprocating engines, go up and down. So there's a lot of force when they change direction. And lo and behold, as we progress, we design turbines, which just go round and round. And they do really, really well going round and round very fast for very long periods. If you think how long airliners fly and how many revolutions those engines go through, it's extraordinary. But that's what they're designed for, and that's what they're perfect at, and that's why they're round. But we're irregular and ragged and, and kind of a bit chaotic, both in our biology and in our behavior. And so that raggediness, uh, that variation, that's where the delight of life lies, as well as many of the problems we have to face. This sort of irregularity, which involves periods of intense activity and periods of resting or pausing or stopping or sleeping, to me seems to be an intrinsic quality of the organic world. And then recently I was organizing a big event, the one that you came to, actually. Yeah, Basecamp. Which I wanted to ask you about. And so you experienced this. So Basecamp is a response to this sort of period of what Chris Katana, the colleague of mine here at Oxford who, who initiated all of this, what he describes as a series of entangled crises. So he uses that word rather than connected to imply that it's kind of messy and difficult and awkward. And so Basecamp was in a, an attempt to try and convene a space where a different kind of conversation could be held between people that don't normally get to speak to each other in order to start to uncover perhaps what might be meaningful responses and I'm being very careful with my language to avoid a problem-solution kind of framing for it, because I think what we were trying to do with Basecamp, and, and probably failing in the main, but that's part of this territory, is to try and to not see things as neat problems and look for solutions, but to try and engage with the messiness and, and the awkwardness and the difficulty. And so in that context, what, what we did as part of it was we were going to, one of the teams suggested that we, we, we could have a siesta after lunch and nap. Uh, it was my favourite bit of the day, uh, <laughs> of the two days. And then it turned out that the, the it was uh, Lucy Taylor, a friend and a colleague of mine, who suggested doing that. And then she wasn't able to be there, and she'd had experience of doing this before. And 
uh, we had 120 odd people there and so it was quite a sort of unusual thing to do and so she wasn't there and so because she's ill and so I had to decide whether or not we tried to do it and I'd never done it before and but my instinct kind of felt that it was a good thing to try and then during the lunch break a couple of people quite separately came up to me and I was check in and how are you doing and I said oh, I'm feeling a bit tired actually I could do with a bit of a rest spontaneously and so are we definitely doing it then you know we invited people to lie down and take a few minutes and it was only 10 or 15 minutes in an event which had been a huge amount of energy and effort to organize 100 odd people why would you take 10 minutes to take a rest or a break and yet that very question suggests that pushing on is the only thing we know how to do and is always the best thing there's a number of things to this this little pause in this meeting one was it allowed us to be together in a different way, a sense of vulnerability, probably atavistic, going back to the cave-dwelling times. Uh, the other is it invokes a sort of slightly dreamlike state. And as you probably remember, somebody snored during that, so people genuinely fell asleep. And that invokes a different kind of mind and a different energy, so it's that. But to your point about is pausing to reassert our humanity, as Lucy and I were talking about this before, she explained to me that there's an organisation and a movement in the United States led by African-Americans called the Ministry of NAPS, which is doing exactly what you describe and using rest periods or napping as an assertion uh, of African-American power in defiance of the, you know, what they see as sort of traditional white power structures that force them to keep going, tell them when to work, when to stop. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. I was running a program here in Oxford a couple of weeks ago and did a session on this and somebody said, oh yeah, it's great, I've got this uh, I've got this thing on my Apple Watch which every hour reminds me to breathe, you know, to breathe, take a deep breath, take a moment. And my response to that was kind of like, I was, I was a bit confused. I kind of, well, that feels like a, that's a good thing. But it also doesn't feel quite quite right or quite the whole story. So so what's that about? So I reflected upon it and I, and I came to realise that actually there's two parts of the pause. One is the pause itself, however long it is. But the other is the choice to pause. And I think that's in the organic and in the human and in the assertion what the African-Americans are talking about with the Minister of Maps is saying, no, no, we'll choose. And so if you abdicate that choice to your mechanical watch, lovely and sophisticated though it is, it's not not a good thing that your watch reminds you. That can be helpful. But the same as with meditation apps, there's a part that's missing when it's driven by a mechanical thing, however helpful and useful and supportive it is, which is your, your choice, the exercising of your agency. And for me, I think the, the idea of pausing, if, if I could kind of have one hope for the, for the book, it would be that it gives people the idea that they have more agency than they realize over how they experience and use their, the time they have. But I, would, I think I would go one step further. So I'm kind of fascinated getting my head around this kind of idea of collective intelligence, which is this kind of a fa- fairly nebulous term, but my favorite definition that I, somebody, uh, Cassie, I spoke to on this podcast, described it as, uh, humans and machines co-evolving together is the way she described it. As machines have just become smarter and better and more efficient, humans are good at what machines are, are bad at and vice versa. So it's that finding our place in an increasingly uh, sort of automated world. We need to find our purpose. It's not, you know, pausing isn't just the delight of life, even though it is. It is our, it's our purpose almost as, as human beings. And so I, I, I'd agree. I think that co-evolution of technology and human beings and i was very struck by what james burke said on, on one of the conversations one of the conversations you had with him about this future of kind of atomic engineering and, it, and i connected it to an idea which if i recall came from harari's book sapiens where he talks about prior to agriculture human beings lived what might have been quite a benevolent way that, that they were able to actually gain 
the means of life relatively easily and spend a fair amount of time just enjoying each other and culture and stories and things like that. And if I'm right, I think he sort of suggests, well, maybe there's a, a version we might get to. So it all, all came together in my head and I thought, wow, I wonder if in James Burke's vision, if he's right, it was the biosphere that produced this sort of benevolent way of living for, for human beings when there were less of us and we had the sort of skill and the wits and the understanding to be able to find the means to s- survive quite easily. But maybe there's a sort of technological layer that's woven over the planet where technology is providing us with the means of support with this sort of atomic we can make whatever we want wherever we want and so the conventional preoccupations of the sustenance of life economic well-being kind of disappear and evaporate and now there's a second period of gentleness and harmoniousness where human beings are living in concert with a technological and an ecological kind of world and that that's you know that was an extraordinary idea to me and you know as I was listening to James I was thinking gosh you know this is one mother of a prediction you know and but I think often the prediction game is a kind of it, it, it leads us off in a false direction because we tend to quickly fall into the, oh that won't happen or that's bound to happen whereas actually listening to James Burke who I have cherished since I was about seven years old mm. it's amazing that we spoke to him and I'm kind of thrilled to be, as it were, occupying the same space as him. Maybe it's more interesting to think, well, let's just take what he says. Let's imagine that that were true. Then what would we think? Then what would life be about? Then how would we occupy ourselves? What would we regard as important? And just to see it as a sort of provocative question, it made me start to think, well, gosh, I wonder if in the future we'll spend the vast majority of our time in creative pursuits, not to make creative products, which is what happens in today's marketized economy, you know, where people who are artists need to sell their art or get people to come to a show, but just to engage in that for its own sake. And that this sort of techno-ecological web, however, whatever it becomes, is a kind of means of sustenance where our society becomes a radically different thing. And I, I don't, again, I'm not interested really in assessing whether that's likely or not, but just in thinking that through and then looking back to where we are and kind of going, let's imagine for the sake of argument that technology can solve all the material problems. Now what would we do? What do we regard as important? And to connect that back to to Harari's contention that actually perhaps agriculture wasn't such a good idea and that the reason people didn't go back, which is often the argument used, well, it must have been a good idea because we went forward, was there was no back because by that time the knowledge to live and the population meant that it was no longer viable to go back to a sort of hunter-gatherer world. Yeah, so the, on that point in particular, the population increased tenfold or something, right. So which couldn't be sustained couldn't by be hunter-gatherer sustained. Exactly. methods. And so once you've made that shift it's to a the next story. paradigm, yeah. there's no yeah, there's no going yeah. back. It's like moving out of London. You can never afford to buy <laughs> a house back then. So if we kind of ask ourselves whether James Burke is right or wrong or, or partly right doesn't really interest me so much. Can we imagine a society where the main preoccupation of people is to enrich their lives in a qualitative way? And what that, if I then step back from that, then they go, oh, look, for hundreds of years, probably thousands of years, most of what we've been obsessed about is the means of survival. At a basic level on, you know, Maslow's hierarchy, that might mean food, you know, but if you're higher up the hierarchy, survival in a highly paid job where the social pressure is great may, might mean psychologically meaning you've got the right posh car, you know, but it's still the same kind of, it's the same dynamic. What would it mean if we let all of that go and in, started to imagine a future where actually most people's activity wasn't to do with sustaining themselves because that is in some way or other solved. And, th- and so that, so then you have to go, okay, well, how might we move to, towards that? And is this sort of divisive, aggressive sort of mood that we're in now globally, 
is that going to move us towards a future of that kind? You know, and it would seem not to. So that is, that's what I find interesting there. I haven't experienced it, but it's like the exercise you referred to earlier without describing walking backwards from the future. So if that's the future that James is portraying, you know, what, what needs to be true in order to mm. walk there? Yeah, exactly. One of the things that strikes me, and actually I see this in conversations I have with colleagues, let's take Basecamp as an example. Mm. So Basecamp was a, a, a very sparsely organized thing, let's say. So there was no resource behind it. It was voluntary effort. It was people coming together. It was spontaneous. It was all done out of people's kind of own free will. There was no remuneration involved, all those sorts of things. There was no agency behind it. There was no sponsor, you know. And so it was quite a precarious thing. If we look at a lot of the efforts we made were actually devoted towards alleviating anxiety. So if I were to to look at how much of our efforts as a team trying to organize this thing were devoted towards alleviating some kind of anxiety, either ours or that of the participants. Some of that's necessary, but it just strikes me that a vast amount of the work we do every day, its function seems actually to be alleviate, to alleviate anxiety. If we were to use that energy and attention for other things, I suspect there'd be a form of abundance and not technologically dependent form of abundance, but a psychological and emotional sense of abundance, which weirdly is kind of much more present in a rural environment like that where I live in Spain, mm. abundance in the sense of there's always time to stop and have a conversation with somebody. A function of this desire to control things is that we squander a lot of energy and effort on the things that are probably not going to work anyway because the world is going to move in unexpected ways come what may. And yes, we need some of it to alleviate our anxiety, but I suspect we overdo that. One of the things I love about improvisers is that they hold a small number of minimal ideas to give them just enough structure to generate a huge amount of novelty and a huge amount of relationships uh, and goodwill and laughter and all the rest of it. Really quite, not easily necessarily, there's difficulty involved, but it's not dripping with effort and sweat. It's kind of, it's a it's a way of working which has ease and grace to it. Absolutely. The liminal space. The liminal space. <laughs> I'm reminded a little over a year ago, left my last company, which was wonderful in many different ways, but it also stressed me out in many different ways. And my wife said to me, Juliet, when I left, what are you going to do with all that kind of stress that you previously held <laughs> in relation to your work? And it was such a great question. It was like, oh, uh, yeah, but I don't know. You know, Where am I going to channel that energy? And I, and I do feel in the last 12 months, which has been a sabbatical or a pause or whatever you want to call it, just had a lot more energy to come along to things like Basecamp, for instance, uh, yeah. and many other things as what well do this podcast. And originally I thought that was going to be an interim period before the next thing, whatever that was. But now I actually think maybe maybe this is the thing. Yeah, sometimes that happened. I mean, it happened to me. So my whole life in Spain came from me leaving a job in an ad agency mm. in London for a year, and I never quite made it home. And that yeah. was in 1990. Sometimes the thing that's in the gap becomes the thing. How can we live more beautifully, really? How can we live more lightly, more joyously, joyously, making less of this kind of effort? If you look at all the great traditions, religious or otherwise, the idea of struggle and suffering is present in many or most of them in different forms. And I think sometimes that misleads us, or perhaps historically has misled us to think that we need to sort of produce that. I think the nature of life is struggle. All living things are trying to fight against the laws of, you know, second law of thermodynamics and go the other way and, and live at that edge. That's arguably a definition of what life is. is mm. It's, you know, biology defies physics, if you will, at least in the short term. And so I think struggle comes with the territory. 
there's never going to be not enough struggle or struggle. So we don't need to propagate or, or fulminate that even more. When you look around you, I've been fascinated recently by just looking at dogs. I live in an area where uh, lots of people have dogs, and I kind of go, the happiest creatures around here are the dogs. You know, what do they know that we don't? You know, or marine biologists say that there's really no sensible way to describe what dolphins do 95% of the time, apart from play. And then that reminds me of Douglas Adams, who, you know, so long and thanks for all the fish, kind of argued that the superior beings on this planet are actually the dolphins, and they leave us this message to the human human beings, saying, you know, so long and thanks for all the fish, when they know that the planet's about to be blown up. And for for me, I kind of think, can we move in that direction? And that's what I've always been interested in. How do we get more ideas more easily? How do we constrain and limit and corral ourselves less? whilst at the same time holding enough structure that we don't have chaos and mayhem and anarchy. And that to me is the liminal space, that kind of thing in between. Thank you, Rob. I really hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation. There was so much in there that I found absolutely fascinating, all about improvising in complexity. And it feels like a really appropriate episode to end 2019 and the first series of On the Edge. We will return again after a suitable pause in 2020. But before we go, please can I ask you one more time to rate, comment and subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who you think might enjoy it as well. This will encourage us to keep on making new connections and find new interesting people to talk to and to share those conversations with you. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community that addresses complex and collaborative challenges in our increasingly connected world. Thank you again for listening. Until next time, please keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye.